mini healing guide. That's the name of today's little wee transmission, mini healing guide. So for today's little bit, I just wanted to go through a list, a basic list, mostly food and nutrition based, not too much metaphysical or emotional, in regards to how we can heal our thyroids and gut. And oftentimes when someone's dealing with a gut problem, they have a thyroid problem, and with a thyroid problem, a, a gut problem, because everything's connected in the body. And the thyroid is essentially the check engine light. If your body was a car, the thyroid is the check engine light. So if you're ever in your vehicle and you see that light comes on, you know that something is perhaps awry, sometimes not with these newer, quote, smart vehicles. But nevertheless, you know something is up. And I like to think of the thyroid gland, oftentimes considered the master gland or the gland of the metabolism, located right in our throat, right where the fifth chakra or the Vishuddha chakra would be. And of course, we're not going to focus on metaphysical, but it could always be something beyond diet, nutrition, and supplements, like not being able to feel that you could speak or say what you have to say. We probably have an epidemic of that nowadays in regards to all the things with shadow banning and speech restrictions, etc. So of course there's many ways why someone would develop a dis-ease. It's not a black and white one size fits all. But I've got a couple of tips. I think I've got yeah, seven tips or so that are helpful in case anybody is dealing with this. And oftentimes as people go on in their years, the body begins to break down, almost like a car that's not taken care of. And not to say that our bodies are like cars, because I think oftentimes Big Z, or Dr. Zog rather, sees the body as just a car, and you said, get rid of this part and put this in. I'm just using that as an analogy, not that our body should be treated like something's broken and we put something new in. I think that's a really creepy way of, of looking at the human body, which is sacred and, and holy. So number one would be lowering gut or intestinal inflammation. So if you're eating food that is irritating your intestines, how can you expect to have a healthy gut or a healthy thyroid? You really can't because if you're eating irritating foods, you're not going to be able to be digesting them and that's going to lower your metabolism, which will lower your thyroid function. And even if you're taking you know, thyroid supplements, whether it be uh, like an NDT or something that's synthetic, if you're eating the wrong diet and still irritating yourself, you're not going to get to the root of it. You could still take these things for decades and still have the condition because the root cause was never addressed. So this is very important, step number one. And this is important for anybody listening, whether it's weight loss, depression, motivation. It could be anything, but today we're focusing on these two topics of the thyroid and the gut. So lowering the inflammation of the gut, this is the key number one step. Inflammation inhibits thyroid function on all levels. And of course, inflammation is a healing response by the body, but it should be acute. If it becomes chronic, that's of course when we have a problem. The best way to lower gut inflammation is to eliminate foods that might be causing intestinal inflammation, right? Pretty simple. So some of these foods, what could they be? Well, gluten is a big one, and it's not just necessarily the gluten-containing grains, it's the hybridization that's been done. The hybridization, especially of wheat, not so much of barley and, and rye and, and triticle, which is a very random grain many people don't know about, which is a blending already hybridized of, of rye and wheat. But we'll stick to wheat for uh, today's discussion. The wheat of today is like 90% in some instances higher gluten than some of the wheat of yesteryear. 
So that's something to very much consider. Um, and also it's, it's sprayed to death with glyphosate, right? Which of course kills intestinal bacteria. And I think that's one of the reasons why we see so much obesity and overweightness. It's not the number one or the only reason, but it's, of course, there's a cascade effect of all these things. Something else interesting and, and rather unsettling in regards to glyphosate is that it's been said to create androgyny. So not just, um, making, I guess, men look like women and women look like men, making them kind of like all look like neuter, which I think is essentially the big goal. All this stuff with the TS stuff is really just to promote the opposite in that extreme way, which of course nature would never be able to mimic or want to even consider. But the main goal is really androgyny or kind of like a neutering. A lot of these foods that cause intestinal irritation will be neutering people, castrating them, right? So gluten is something you may want to think about. Uh, you may want to just stop eating regular wheat. You may want to eat barley, eat rye, uh, spelt, uh, einkorn. You know, you can, you can test them out. For someone like myself, I found that einkorn was the least easy to digest of all of them. And of course, you want to focus on eating these grains in a traditional manner. I cannot emphasize that enough. You want to eat them sprouted, soaked, and fermented like our ancestors did. And if you're not willing to do that, then maybe just don't eat them. You know, avoid them for a little while until you can find something like that or make it yourself. But people eating hybridized Irritated food that's not properly prepared is obviously going to cause uh, thyroid and gut issues. Number two would be lectins. These are anti-nutrients that are found in foods. Uh, some examples of this would be some of the uh, legumes, as well as I believe some of the squashes out there have lectins. Some people have more sensitivity than others to this. And of course, sometimes it can actually even appear in certain forms of dairy, depending on what the animal was feeding on. So when you're procuring your dairy goods and egg goods and meats and fishes, it's equally important what that animal is eating because you are eating what you ate, ate, essentially. So lectins is something else for some people. Another thing would be high FODMAP foods. Maybe you've heard this word before and you're wondering as to what this is. It stands for fermentable oleosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols, which are short-chain carbohydrates that the small intestine absorbs poorly. With some people, when they consume these foods, they have digestive distress, like cramping, diarrhea, constipation, stomach bloating, gas, and flatulence, right? So what would some of these foods be? It could be dairy foods, but I think it's mainly because of the A1 casein that's causing it and possibly the pasteurization. Uh, wheat is considered a FODMAP. Uh, some legumes and certain types of vegetation like onions and garlic, as well as artichokes and asparagus, have these short-chain carbohydrates which are very fermentable. So anything that's going to ferment in the digestive tract, especially if it ferments in the small intestine, which should have a small amount of bacteria, not really a lot at all. It really should be more in the large intestine when the food starts to break down and then comes out of the body as, as feces or waste. What happens is when people eat these foods that digest poorly and they don't have the agni or the fire in the stomach because of years of eating the wrong foods that were devitalized and stressed and heavy metals and things like that, the bacteria sets up the scene to proliferate in an effort to digest these foods because the body doesn't have enough of its strength or vril to digest them on their own. 
So for some people who are in a hole right now in regards to their gut or their thyroid, they may want to temporarily avoid some of these foods and also if when they put them back into their diet, getting the best quality possible. Something else could be histamine. Maybe you've heard this word if you've traveled around nutrition areas online. A histamine is a chemical created in the body that is released by white blood cells into the bloodstream. So for some people, this can cause allergic reactions. They can get like a reddening of the face, hives, etc., things like that. And there are certain foods that actually will uh, increase histamine in the system. And there's also a relationship between estrogen dominance and histamine. So if someone is dealing with estrogen dominance, more likely they're going to react poorly to these high histamine foods. Some of these foods would be things like fermented food, which in many regards we're told is exceedingly healthy, very traditional, you know, on and on and on. Fermented foods are a large part of the Weston A. Price Foundation's diet, a uh, large part of many you know, paleo ancestral programs, uh, the GAPS diet, etc. Not everybody does well with fermented food. It really depends what type. Some people do better with the dairy ferments like the kefir and the yogurt than they do with like sauerkraut and kimchi and things of that nature. But something you have to remember with fermented food is that even though it was traditional and ancestral for many cultures, it isn't necessarily something that we would have been doing if we had access year-round to fresh food, right? So it's something that was done to preserve the harvest. Like let's say we had X amount of cabbages and then we didn't want the cabbage to rot, we would make sauerkraut, right? So it may not necessarily be healthy, even though it's traditional and ancestral. Something to remember, not just with food, but with also other things like ideologies and philosophies. So for some people, this can cause a reaction, um, the fermented foods. Something else would be alcohol, which of course is essentially a fermented food. People who have uh, histamine issues will get like migraines. Migraines are also associated with estrogen dominance. Something else that's high histamine would be packaged meats. This would be smoked and packaged meats, you know, like bacons and sausages and delicatessen cold cuts, things of that nature, which are not fresh meat. Also aged meat, like aged steak. I've never understood why people would pay more for an aged steak. I think it tastes horrific, honestly. I, I, I just like the taste of fresh meat. But these can also increase um, histamine. Uh, aged cheese, another fermented food. Some people don't do well with aged cheese, very aged cheese, especially if they have these high levels of, of histamine. And something else would be uh, legumes, like we talked about in the context of uh, less lectins and FODMAPs. That could be uh, certain ones like kidney bean, chickpea, and peanut that can cause um, swelling for some people. And of course, everyone's gonna be different. It really depends how these foods are prepared too. A lot of the bean foods nowadays are prepared in not in a traditional way. They're not soaked. They're not cooked with kombu, which is a Japanese seaweed, which makes the beans way more digestible. Uh, if anything, the opposite is done with a lot of these you know, snacking chips and pastas, really an abomination of, of food. And the final thing on the histamine list is citrus. So for some people, citrus is actually not high in histamine, but it can trigger the release of histamines in one system. So again, if someone's got maybe estrogen dominance, uh, citrus may not be the best thing for them. And then some foods that would be low histamine, in case you're wondering, fresh meat, fresh fruit, fresh fruit, uh, fresh vegetation, but not things like tomato, eggplant, or spinach, uh, herbal teas, and... They're saying whole grain bread products, but that may be best to avoid if they're not properly prepared and they're uh, wheat based.
so yeah, a little bit right there in regards to different styles of food. So, so far we've got nut styles of food, things in food that could cause issue, gluten, lectins, FODMAP, histamine. Something else would be A1 milk. I did a post, I think about a week ago on the Racial Science Channel, talking about a correlation that I witnessed. Just a lot of my data becomes just because of what I've seen. You know, it's not because I've looked at all these Zao Sludge studies. I observe things and I notice patterns. So I think... A1 milk is really not good for anybody, but some people can get away with it less than others. I think that people who have less hybridized or mixed blood do less well with it because it's a hybridized food. And I've noticed this look with some Europeans, not the ones that traditionally have more of an almond-shaped eye like some of the Uralic people from Hungary or Finland, but people who are overeating this indigestible protein will have this puffiness, almost like an Asian look to the eye. And of course, there could be many factors why this is occurring, but I think one of the main reasons is because they cannot, the humans who are eating the A1 protein, they cannot break it down. So it's showing up in the face. Something to consider these things. And yes, you can eat amazing, delicious, satisfying, healthy food with avoiding the majority of these. It may be temporary, it may be permanent. You may actually feel like you never want to eat this stuff again. So just something to think about. But once you've eliminated the foods that promote inflammation, you'll be very surprised how you feel. And maybe you've never done this. Maybe you've gone decades on this planet and you've not done this yet. So something to consider. Okay, number two. Uh, consuming micronutrient-dense food. Proper thyroid function, thyroid hormone conversion, are the actions of the thyroid hormones, and they're dependent on vitamins and minerals. So if most of us are eating an exceedingly devitalized diet, how do we expect to have good thyroid and good gut function? The best foods rich in nutrients are animal foods. These micronutrients have high absorption rates and often in the right form your body can use right away without having to convert it first. And of course, you don't want to eat all animal foods. You want to find the regime that works for you. You want to find the types of animal foods that work for you. And this is highly individual. Number three, avoiding foods that interfere with thyroid function. What are some of those? Uh, things like cassava, lima beans, uh, linseed or flaxseed, one of the worst, the grain sorghum for some people, and sweet potatoes because all of these are cyanogenic, meaning they have cyanide naturally occurring. Of course, that's lessened when they're cooked, but they contain these cyanogenic glucosides that are metabolized to thiocyanates that compete with iodine for thyroid uptake. So something to be aware of, especially when you see through some of these plant-based diets or even some of these paleo regimes or the uh, autoimmune protocol, all of these you know weird, very restrictive regimes, people loading up on the sweet potatoes because they're told they cannot have the nightshade potatoes of the white variety and they cannot have grain. So they go hog or zog wild on sweet potatoes and then they end up getting way too much um, beta carotene vitamin A, not the retinol type that's in animal foods, as well as this compound, this cyanogenic glucosides, these compounds where it competes with iodine for thyroid uptake. And these people wonder why they have low thyroid function, especially if they're on one of these regimes which is uh, brimming with all different types of nuts and um, raw cruciferous leaves, which is number two on the list of number three, the subset of that. Cruciferous vegetations uh, can also be interfering with thyroid function, especially if you eat them raw, like the crudite platter is a, a no-no. If you're ever at a soiree and there's a crudite platter, uh, stick to the, the carrots. That's typically what I do, and the, the dip is usually poisoned anyway. So yeah, I mean, you can eat a couple of cruciferous vegetations, but make sure they are very well cooked. And right now, if your gut is on the fritz, 
you may not want to consume any of these for a little while. And these contained glucosinolates, uh, metabol metabolites that compete, again, with iodine for thyroid uptake. Something else, which is considered goitrogenic, would be uh, soy and uh, the grain millet. Millet's not used too much um, in too many things, but a lot of the gluten-free flour blends out there are very, very suspect because they contain grains and beans and starches. Many of them are intestinal irritants and um, can, you know, compete compete with iodine for thyroid uptake, so those are best uh, avoided. The gluten-free industry is, um, is a scam, essentially. It's high-priced, uh, low-vitality foods that really don't help people, loaded with PUFAs. Now they're fortifying all these gluten-free foods with iron because they want to make sure that subset of the population gets the heavy metal poisoning. So, you know, that's how it works. And soy, you know, most of the time, a little bit of soy, if it's fermented in the traditional sense, like if it's a shoyu or a tamari or a natto or a miso, something like that, a very small amount that's eaten in the context of animal foods and seaweeds like they do in East Asia, that's not the issue. The issue is eating heaps of, let's say, tofu, um, heaps of meat that is actually fed soy and corn, or not, we're talking about soy now, but corn's another problem most of the time, but soy. Soy in the form of uh, meat. You hear a lot of people say, I don't eat any soy. I'm thinking like, you don't even know that you're eating a lot of soy because it's in all of your meat and all of your sauces and seasonings that you refuse to make at home and buy the bottles of are loaded with hydrolyzed soy protein. So there it is. So a little bit, a little bit there about some foods that um, may be causing um, issues, uh, interfering with thyroid function. Number four, super important, not food related, but I'll say it anyway because it's so important, uh, reducing stress. Stress increases stress hormones such as cortisol and adrenaline. These hormones obviously inhibit proper thyroid production and also proper thyroid hormone function. Stress is also the biggest thyroid antagonist there is. Inflammation increases cortisol, so it's a double whammy for inflammation. So stress is um, a big problem. Make sure you consume enough calories and protein, carbohydrates, fats, salts, and calcium. So that's really important too to make sure you're getting all of that. Uh, magnesium, of course, can help with stress. You can take it any way that works for you. Number five would be trying some prothyroid substances. Um, ashwagandha is one that some people have good results with, but you have to get the KSM66 ashwagandha, which is washed in milk. It's gonna be a lighter beige powder than the darker one that kind of looks like cocoa powder or coffee, but it's like more of a powder than a grind. So ashwagandha is something that can help. Of course, you really have to figure out what supplements work best for you based on your, your constitution and all the things we already know, age, race, sex, etc. So something to think about right there. That's one that I like. Of course, the magnesium, like I just mentioned, uh, you could even try taking some thyroid, like some actual, you know, desiccated bovine thyroid, like if that works for you. Number six would be to fix what they call leaky gut or intestinal permeability. And this is when the um, stomach eventually becomes like Swiss cheese and there are holes in it. And these, the cell wall junction is like one cell thick. So there's like a little gap there. And then what happens is these particles enter the body and uh, that creates inflammation, of course. And if you're eating food that's hella inflammatory, then you're gonna have inflammation all over your body if you have this intestinal permeability. So a great way to improve um, intestinal permeability is to drink a cup of bone broth or a cup of milk 
with a tablespoon of bloom gelatin twice daily. That should be part of everyone's regime just in general doing that. Um, it's a very easy way to get good quality protein. You just basically bloom a tablespoon of gelatin, you add your milk, you warm it up very gently, or you add your broth and you warm it up very gently. If you're doing something like oxtail, which is so wiggly jiggly, you won't even need to add any gelatin to it. And most of the bone broths on the market, they are made in a way that's very deleterious. They're probably using the long bones, which are very high in heavy metals, and they're simmering them for, in some instances, continuously up to 24 hours, possibly even 48, or they have like a thing going where it's, it never stops. They just keep on adding more bones. That's actually going to be worse for people than not eating it at all because it's going to have all these heavy metals, all these impurities, and if they're just using regular animal bones and not bones from, you know, well-fed, pastured, or grass-fed animals, it's going to get all the glyphosate and all that into the bone broth. So something to consider. Uh, I suggest making it yourself. It's not too hard to make. It's just one part of your regime that you set up for yourself. And another tip uh, in regards to helping intestinal permeability is getting the vitamin D, uh, getting outside, getting the sun on the skin like I'm doing right now. And finally, number seven, there are a couple of topical things one can use. And this is in the context for hair because this article originally was the context for hair, how people who have thyroid and gut issues can oftentimes have issues with their hair. So I will add this, especially since hair and hair loss is a, is a very big topic and has been for years, but I think it keeps on becoming a larger topic because we're seeing more and more people who are of younger age having hair issues like in their 20s and things like that. So here we are. Hair loss is often due to inflammation in the hair follicle, so blocking that inflammation can topically be useful. So some topicals that help with this could be vitamin E, vitamin C, even a caffeine powder, believe it or not, on the hair. Uh, rosemary or like a rosemary hair oil. I would always dilute any essential oils if I did utilize them or I would take actual rosemary and I would steep it in something like olive oil for a couple of months in a dark area and I'd make my own rosemary oil. Or maybe you could buy one if you didn't want to wait. Even aspirin topically, which is white willow bark, can help with inflammation. If someone is dealing with scalp fibrosis, then using something to dissolve the fibrosis might be very helpful. Things like progesterone, vitamin E, rosemary, etc. Even onion juice was thought to help um, topically stimulate hair growth in one study. So that's something also that could be uh, utilized, as well as uh, capsaicin, which is one of the ingredients that makes chili pepper spicy. That may have the same effect and also stimulate the much needed blood flow to the scalp. So it's all about flow. Flow to get the peristalsis going so one can take a dump. Flow so someone has good thyroid health so they feel motivated, you know, so they don't want Like if you're dreading every event in your life, that's a sign that something is on the fritz. The check engine light is not doing well. And if someone's dealing with depression, that's another sign of thyroid issue. Um, and oftentimes when we have these blood sugar fluctuations, that makes us feel depressed, right? Because we're going from these highs and, and lows. So oftentimes when our organs are not working correctly because of stress and devitalization and um, consuming ill foods for so long, we end up with these metabolic diseases that actually affect our mood and we actually feel mentally ill. And then we go to Dr. Z and then Dr. Z can't do anything for us. And then Dr. Z shuffles us around and tells us to go to a psychiatrist and then they want to put us on pills just to numb us. I mean, the whole medical system is just, essentially the diagnosis is just 
just a, a BDSM humiliation ritual at the end of the day. So that's why it's so important moving forward that we understand or comprehend how to take care of our bodies, right? Because every town, every village, every community is going to need at least one medicine man or woman or possibly even more. So I think I'll leave it at that for this crisp Monday. It's about 35 degrees where I'm at. It's cold. I finally whipped out my winter jacket and I'm taking a walk, enjoying the sun and orating this little piece. So I think I'll leave it at that. And in regards to the live shows, uh, I'll be resuming the live shows in the end of November or uh, the very beginning of December. I've got a lot of transitions going on right now in my life, like I said in one of the last mini uh, clips. So that's when the live show will come back. I have some interesting material for the month of December for the Yuletide and, and more. So I wish you well on this uh, amazing Monday. I hope you're doing something good for yourself and you found this little tidbit uh, enjoyable and informative. Until next time, Satnam.